unite around a person. We unite around you, Jesus. You are the one we follow. We don't follow a list of rules, a list of do's and don'ts. We follow a person. We follow God. We follow you, Jesus. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Y'all may be seated. If you would turn with me to Genesis chapter 11. Genesis chapter 11, we're going to be reading the first um, 11, verse 9 verses of chapter 11 today. If you don't have a Bible this morning, just lift up your hand. We've got extras, and we'd love to give you a Bible. So if you need one, just raise up your hand, and one of our men will bring a Bible to you. And if you want to keep that Bible, if you don't have a Bible at home, by all means, please keep it. Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 9, we have been going through the first parts of Genesis um, over these past few weeks in a study called the Jesus Tribe. I think a lot of times we look at these stories, and this is one of those childhood stories you get from Genesis, and you hear it over and over again, and we think they don't have any relevance to our life today, and we couldn't be farther from the truth, that the truths found in the first parts of Genesis are as applicable to our lives as anything else in the Bible. Genesis 11, starting in verse 1. Now, the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and butamen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down, and go down, and they are confused their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the languages of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to you right now, We pray that you'd open up ears and open up hearts. These are not things we can do on our own. Lord, we, in and of our own strength and power, have no ability to hear your word in a a way that makes it effective to change us, to do a spiritual work in our hearts. We know from your word that spiritual things are only spiritually wrought, that your Holy Spirit has to move. And so we pray, Spirit, move in our midst this morning. That we might hear your word, we might understand what happened in this story that is history, that's real, that's recorded for us to know how to live and how to honor you and how to glorify you and what it means to have the type of unity and community that brings glory to your name. So Father, this morning as Deemer preaches, I pray that you'd give him the spirit to speak the word to speak it boldly and to speak it clearly. And Lord, I pray, Father, that you just encourage him and strengthen him 
and give him the ability to preach the word accurately and give us the ability to hear the word accurately as well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, There are some words that were written by someone a while ago that say this. Imagine all the people living for today. Imagine there's no countries. It isn't hard to do. Imagine all the people living life in peace. You may say that I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will be as one. Imagine no possessions, I wonder if you can. No need for greed or hunger, a brotherhood of man. Imagine all the people sharing all the world. That's not in the Bible. I hope you know that that's not (laughs) in the Bible. Um, If you are my age or older, and maybe some of you younger folks also recognize that song, the lyrics to that song, it's John Lennon's Imagine. And that song echoes the heart cry of many people who long for unity, who long for humans to be as one, to get along, to be on the same page, to stop fighting amongst ourselves, to lay down our weapons and work together towards a common goal. You hear politicians on the campaign trail echo this sentiment. They say, it's time to come together. You'll hear them say, every four years, you hear You know, a handful of guys running around the campaign trail. It's time for us to come together, you'll hear them say. You'll hear religious gurus bemoaning the lack of unity amongst the nations. And if only we could all just get along, things would be so much better. And all of us long for a world where there is harmony. All of us long for a world where there is peace amongst people. We long for a world where there is no division. Why? Well, the reason why we long for that kind of unity is because we are made in the image of God. God himself exists in community with himself. You have the Godhead. We talked about this a few weeks ago. You have the Godhead. You have the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. There is no division amongst the Godhead. There is perfect unity and harmony within the Trinity. And we ourselves, we are image bearers, and we long to dwell in a united community with others like ourselves. We were created not to be independent, isolated beings. We are created to be a part of a people, a group, a tribe, if you will, that dwells in unity and and dwells in peace. Even unbelievers know this. Even John Lennon realized this. Even the murderous, fanatical, Islamic, suicidal bomber longs for this in the depths of his soul. And him going into a pizza parlor or to a shopping mall in Israel and blowing himself up along with a bunch of Jews, killing them all. He, this is what he thinks will lead to a peaceful, united world. And that after all the infidels are killed and the banner of Islam flies over the whole world, there will finally be peace and there will finally be unity. The communal essence of God demonstrated amongst the members of the Godhead along with man's deep desire for community, is foundational in this series that Pastor Steve and I are preaching called The Jesus Tribe. And, and, and in this sermon series, Steve and I are 
exploring one of the major storylines in the Bible. That being that God, from the very beginning, even before the beginning, has purposed in his heart to have a people, a community, a tribe set apart for himself for the glory of God. Now, when you consider the communal nature of God, when you consider the fact that human beings are made to be in community with one another, not isolated individuals, it's rather confusing then when you get to the story in Genesis 11. It can appear on the surface to be kind of contradictory. I mean, here we have this God who has created men for community, and what does he see? He's looking down, and he sees men as united as they have ever been before. They are working together. They are getting along, it seems. They are accomplishing great things, and God looks down on them, and he sees what's happening, and God totally ruins it. God takes this people, he takes this community, and he completely decimates it and destroys it and scatters it abroad over the face of the earth. And the natural question is, why? Why, God? Why would, why would you do this? Why would you confuse the languages of this people and scatter them over the face of the earth? Languages cause barriers. Languages cause divisions. Wars have erupted because you have people groups and cultures who can't understand one another. And so, so much conflict has happened because different ethnic groups can't get along. And, and this God who wants man to be in community with, with one another totally here breaks up community. It doesn't seem to make much sense on the surface. And yet upon closer inspection and further reflection on Genesis 11, we will realize that there is something much deeper going on here than, than uh, uh, having a group of people that have a desire to display their architectural or engineering prowess. What's happening in Genesis 11 are things that every one of us in this room are familiar with. Sins and longings and desires that all of us deal with. There are at least three major sins being committed at Babel, and all three sins are encapsulated in verse 4 in chapter 11. You can look there with me. Verse 4, and they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. There, there are at least three sins there that, that I see going on in verse 4 and in this, in this story of the Tower of Babel. Number one, <clears throat> there is a man-centered preservation. The second thing, there is a man-centered exaltation. And the third thing is that there is a man-centered salvation. Let's look at the first one. Man-centered preservation. One of the sins of Babel is that they love and crave a sense of security more than they love God and more than they love his word. The text says they're building this city. Now, why are they building this city? Well, it, it tells you right there. It says, lest we be dispersed over the face of the earth. This is a man-centered sinful attempt at self-preservation. Now, why do I come to that conclusion? I come to that conclusion... Uh, because the men of Babel are doing the exact opposite of the mandate that God has given the human race. It is an explicit rejection of God's command to spread out and to fill the earth. Remember Genesis chapter 1, verse 28? God, he, after God creates the heavens and the earth, he creates man. And what's the very first thing he tells man? He says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth... 
and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So it was God's desire from the very beginning to have uh, man multiply, to have man spread out, to have man filling the earth. Now what is the significance of filling the earth? Why can't man just hang out in one place? Well, let's remember, and we covered this briefly a couple of weeks ago, so I won't dwell there for long, but remember, as by way of review, whose image is man made in? He is made in the image of God. He's meant to glorify God by showing a reflection of God, by demonstrating aspects of God's character. And to the degree that man rightfully images God, God is glorified. So if the image of God is being fruitful and multiplying, and if the image of God is spreading out over the world and taking dominion over creation, what is it that is filling the earth? God's, the glory of God is filling the earth. And as God is a ruler and has dominion over all creation, man is to fill the whole world and have dominion over it, including the ultimate uh, uh, imaging, the ultimate dominion and rulership of God. So God's desire to have man fill the earth is reflective of his desire to have his glory fill the earth. And this is not just a a, a pre-Genesis 3 mandate. This is not just a pre-fall mandate. We see this command reiterated in Genesis chapter 9, after the fall. Right after God floods the earth, Noah and his family, they get off the boat, and the, the first thing God tells Noah and his sons, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And not long after that, uh, just a couple of generations after God gives that mandate to Noah and his family, the people of Babel decide to do differently. Why? Well, I think it's helpful to have the context of the story in mind as we move on, and it'll help us see why. In Genesis 6, we see that the world got so evil, the world got so bad, that God responded to this by bringing judgment on sinners in the form of a catastrophic flood. And God decides that he's going to give grace to Noah and his immediate family, so he saves them while everybody else perishes in the flood. Now we, now, we skip, uh, uh, now we skip ahead a little bit to Genesis 10. And Genesis 10 chronicles the descendants of one of Noah's sons. And it tells us about a great-grandson of Noah whose name was Nimrod. You can look at chapter 10, verse 8, and it says, Cush, Cush is Noah's grandson, it says, Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was the beginning of Nimrod's kingdom. It says in verse 10, in chapter 10, the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. So we see Babel and Shinar being part of the dominion of this king named Nimrod. And, it, and, and we move to now to verse 11 or to chapter 11, and we see the city of Babel and this area of, um, of Shinar. So we have uh, this, this man, this, this king, and the text says that he was a mighty man. The text says he was a mighty hunter. That probably does not mean that he bagged a lot of deer. That's probably not the kind of hunting that that's talking about. It probably means he was a hunter of men. 
He bagged a lot of men. He was a killer of men. He was a mighty warrior. He was a conqueror. He was the first great conqueror. And Nimrod's name, by the way, means rebel, interestingly enough. And so often the scriptures, when, when a name is given to somebody, that gives us clues to that person's character and that person's identity. We do have some bits of information about Nimrod outside of the Bible. Uh, the Jewish historian Josephus tells us that Nimrod led the people in open rebellion against God. According to Josephus, Nimrod said he would be revenged on God if he should have a mind to drown the world again. For that he would build a tower too high for the waters to be able to reach and that he would avenge himself on God for destroying their forefathers. So what, what's happening here at Babel, it's more than just a group of people wanting to show off their, their technological uh, prowess and their, their abilities at construction. What you have here is open rebellion, open rejection, open hostility towards God and, and, and towards God's word. And Nimrod is the ringleader. Nimrod is living up to the meaning of his name. He is a rebel. And God told the people to disperse. He told them to fill the earth. And the people didn't like that idea. Perhaps they're worried about another flood, as Josephus suggests in his writings. I don't know. But, but regardless of the specifics, it is clear from the biblical text that they were worried about what was going to happen if they didn't follow God. They don't want to be scattered. They don't want to be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. They want it to remain unified. They want it to remain strong. They want it to remain secure. And instead of finding security in the God who showed mercy and grace and kindness to his great-grandfather Noah, Nimrod and the people after him reject that, and they instead look for security and self-preservation in a city. This, by the way, is exactly what we do. We forget about the mercy of God, we forget about the grace of God, we forget about the love of God, and we come to the decision that God is not trustworthy. So instead of building our lives on the foundations of God's word, we, we find security in money. We find security in possessions. We find security in relationships. And we throw ourselves into shoring up those things, much like the people of Babel threw themselves into building a city. The Babylonians thought it was too dangerous too uncomfortable, too risky to follow God. They like their own way better. And just like the people at Babel, so many times people today reject God's word. They reject the Bible. They reject Jesus Christ because it's not safe. It's too risky. It's much more comfortable, so it seems, to not be a Christian to not follow God, to not go the way of God. And on the surface, at least, that's true. Many times, the things that God calls his people to do, they are not safe. In the world's eyes, God calls us to evangelize. That's not safe. We could get laughed at. We could get scorned. In some countries, heads get chopped off when you evangelize. And yet God calls us to do that. We are called to be a humble people. We are called to be a people who turn the other cheek. There is risk in that. We are called to love our enemies for crying out loud. We're called to love, we're, we're, we're called to love and pray for the world that hurts us and persecutes us. We're called to give and to sacrifice and to 
care for the poor and the needy and widows and orphans, and God calls his people to do all kinds of things that seem utterly ridiculous and risky and dangerous even in the eyes of the world. There are things that God tells, calls his people to do that in the world's eyes, they don't, don't make sense. It doesn't seem right. And yet the scriptures say there is a way that seems right to man, but in the end it leads in death. Now we all struggle with this. Even Christians on this side of the cross, even believers, struggle with the sinful tendency to go back to the things we used to find security in, in our old lives. There may be some of you in this room who have who've struggled with pornography addiction and you found some security and a sense of life in that sin and when things go wrong in your life right now and when you are afraid or when you are insecure or when you feel vulnerable and weak, you feel this pull to go back into that sin. There's a false sense of security in that world. For some of you, it may be a pull to alcohol or to drugs. For others, you may have built your life finding security and safety in relationships and making sure that all those relationships are strong and everybody's getting along. And, and when there are problems in those relationships, you begin to feel like your life is, is unraveling and you don't feel secure anymore. It could be a myriad of different things, some of them evil and some of them not necessarily evil in and of themselves, but they become evil when we, when we bank our lives and our happiness and our security on anything else outside of God. And when we do that, we are acting like Babylonians and not as sons and daughters of a father who we can trust will give good things to his children. But here's where the irony is at Babel. And this is the irony for the existence of all of sinful humanity. When we cling to anything outside of God for security, for our happiness, for our fulfillment, those things will eventually be taken away from us. And at the end of it all, the thing that we feared the most ends up happening to us. This is exactly why Jesus says later on, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, will find it. The person who is clinging and grasping and hanging on to anything outside of God in an attempt to find life will not only in the end lose the things that he is hanging on to, but will lose his life itself. The people of Babel, they were desperate to not be dispersed over the earth. They clung to a city. They clung to a tower. They clung to one another for safety and for security and for life And what happens at the end of it all? At the end of it all, the very thing that they feared the most comes to pass. Chapter 11, verse 4, they say, let's let's build this city lest we be dispersed over the face of the earth. And then go down to verse 8, and what does it say happened? So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the earth. The thing they feared the most happen. The person who is clinging to save his life by seeking anything outside of God, that, that thing that he fears the most, losing his life, that's going to happen, Jesus says. Life is truly found. Security is truly found. Preservation is truly found in releasing all those other things that we are trusting to save us and to cling to Jesus Christ instead. You can't hang on to the world and hang on to God at the same time. So choose this day who you will serve and who you will trust. Man-centered self-preservation. The next thing is man-centered exaltation. The people of Babel say, let's build the city, let's make this tower, and they say, let's make a name for ourselves. 
The people are concerned about their name. They are concerned about their reputation. They are concerned about their glory. One of the reasons why the people of Babel want to build this tower is so that they can make a lasting mark on the world for themselves. And, and, and not only for their contemporaries, but also for subsequent generations. They'll, that they'll look back and they'll, they'll look in awe at what has been accomplished. Wow, look at those guys. Look what, look, look, what, look what that king and his people did. Look how awesome and incredible and mighty they are. And the problem at Babel is a problem that man has had since the very beginning. We desire to have our name exalted. We desire to have our name lifted up. We desire praise. We desire honor. We want to make a name for ourselves. And instead of finding our joy and our satisfaction in knowing God and lifting him up, we desire to lift ourselves up. Now, you may not want to be globally famous like the people at Babel did, but you may want to be well thought of in your little sphere of influence. You may want your friends or your family or your coworkers to think, wow, isn't he something? Isn't, isn't she talented, man? Wow, that, that person is just, is, is just amazing and something else. You, 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 may, you may crave uh, people around you to think well of you, to hold you in high esteem. We all have this craving for recognition. We all have this craving for praise. Even preachers struggle with this sin. The moment this sermon is over and I step down these stairs, the devil is going to tempt me, and he's going to tempt me to worry about what you think of me. That's going to, that's going to happen. It's, it's happened before. I'm going to be tempted to worry about whether I preached a good sermon or not, or whether I made a good impression or not, and fretting over what people think of Deemer Webb. Who cares about Deemer Webb? Deemer Webb is nothing! But we all struggle with these things to one degree or another in one way or another. And this type of sin, whether it is the people of Babel wanting their name to be great for future generations, whether it's you worrying about the person sitting two rows ahead of you or behind you, what they think of you, whether it's me fretting over what people in church think of me and my preaching, let me tell you, these types of sins are satanic to the core. They are more serious and more dangerous than we realize. This type of sin goes all the way back to the garden when the serpent tells Eve, go ahead, Eve, eat that fruit. It's going to make you wise. It's going to make you great. It's going to make you like God. And Adam and Eve's sin had everything to do with self-exaltation and a desire to displace God himself. We do the same thing. Because, listen, if I'm concerned about my name, if I'm concerned about my glory, if I'm concerned about what other th- people think about me and my reputation, if I'm consumed with those things, then what am I not thinking about? I'm not thinking of God's name, and I'm not thinking of God's glory, and I'm not thinking of God's reputation, and I have become the center of my world. And if I am the center of my world, then who has become God in my world? See, these kinds of sins are more serious than we think. You cannot be consumed with self and God at the same time. It's going to be either the one or the other. To worry about our name, our fame, how well others esteem us is at the root of self-worship and idolatry. And again, there's irony here. In the first irony, you, you have the Babylonians not wanting to disperse. And so they reject God, they cling to other things, and, and in doing so, the very thing that they, they feared 
dispersion. That came to pass. That was the first irony. The second irony is that these men, these men wanted to have a great name. They wanted to be well esteemed and well thought of. They wanted to be made to look great, and yet the exact opposite happens. They are made to look like fools, babbling fools. Self-exaltation is always self-defeating. It never works. I'm reminded of um, Isaiah chapter 14. Isaiah 14 talks, prophet Isaiah talks about the, the king of Babylon. Oh, here we are again, another king of Babylon. Babylon comes up over and over in the Bible. It's always associated with maximum evil and maximum rebellion against God. And Isaiah 14, talking about the king of Babylon, some people think this also may be talking about the power that is behind the king of Babylon, Satan himself. But, but look at what it says. I can read it, or you can turn there with me. Isaiah 14, starting at verse 12. This is what it says, talking about the, at at the very least, the king of Babylon, but also maybe talking about the evil power behind the king of Babylon. It says, How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. And I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. And what happens? Next verse says, but you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. You wanted to exalt yourself as high as you could possibly go. How high is that? Up to God himself. But the end result is the exact opposite. You are brought down as low as you can possibly go. Down to Sheol. Down to the grave itself. Down into the pit. And that is the destiny of all who seek to exalt themselves and not exalt God. What is particularly fascinating is the contrast that Moses, Moses wrote Genesis... The contrast that Moses draws between the people of Babel in Genesis 11 and Abraham in Genesis 12. And in this we're going to learn something about God and how he deals with people. In Genesis 11, the men of Babel, they seek to construct this great city and make a name for themselves. Uh, In their pride and arrogance and and their desire for self-exaltation, they move forward with this building project. And what happens? God totally humbles them. Yet what happens in Genesis chapter 12? God appears to a man named Abraham. And Abraham, in humility, trusts God and obeys God. And what does God say to Abraham? God says, I will bless you and I will make your name great. (laughs) The men of Babel were running after self-exaltation and a desire to make their name great. And God made fools out of them and brought them low. Yet in the very next chapter... You have a man who's not seeking those things, and God tells him, I will make your name great, Abraham. The Babylonians try under their own effort to make their name great, and it doesn't work. For one to have their name made great, for one to be exalted, God has to do it. Jesus puts it this way. Jesus says, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. When man undertakes to make his own name great, what happens? He takes credit for his own accomplishments, and he does not give glory to God. But when God undertakes to make a person great, where does that lead to? 
who gets the credit for that? If your name is great because God has done it, then you've got nothing to boast about, right? Nothing. If it is a work of God, then what do we do? We give thanks to God for it, and we recognize that this is all his doing and not ours, and we give all glory back to God. So even when God makes someone else great, it serves God's ultimate purpose in bringing glory and honor and exaltation to God himself where it belongs. So we have at Babel, man-centered preservation, man-centered exaltation, and then the third thing is man-centered salvation. When we think of the Tower of Babel, we usually think of it... I've used to, when I was younger, envision this in my mind. I think other people do, and I've seen this even drawn this way before. We envision it something like the Leaning Tower of Pisa. You know, one of those kinds of, of towers. But that's not the kind of tower that they're building. Biblical scholars are pretty much in agreement that the type of structure they, they were building was probably a ziggurat. These ziggurats were all over the ancient world. A ziggurat is just it's like a gigantic pyramid-type structure with staircases and different levels, and you could climb all the way up to the top of, uh, of this building. And the ziggurats in the ancient world were a part of pagan worship. And at the top of this tower, there would be like a, a little small temple for worship. The, uh, the name Babel, by the way, means gate of God, or gate of of heaven, And it was believed that at the top of these, these temple towers, you could have access to the gods. You could have access to divine power up at the top of this high structure, kind of where heaven and earth meet, where heaven and earth come together. There you could come and you could meet with the spirit world. And you could, you could have access to the power and knowledge and all of these types of things. It was a meeting place between God and man. You see, these people, having rejected the true God, still they had this desire deep down inside to worship something. We all do, because we're made that way, we're built that way, we're wired that way. And so, if we, if we reject the true God, we're going to we're gonna figure out something else to worship sooner or later. <clears throat> this is where all the, the false religions of the world come from. This desire to worship something. And these Babylonians believe that this tower would connect them to God. Would connect them to salvation. And every false religion since Babel does the exact same thing. Man is so prideful that he cannot handle the idea that there is nothing that he can do to achieve salvation. In his own strength in his own power, with his own goodness. We can't handle that in our sinful pride. We think, surely there's got to be something. I mean, maybe it's 90, maybe it's 90% God, but can't 10% of it be me? I mean, there's got to be something that I can do, that I can achieve to save myself. And so what do people do? People build a system of rules and structures and hoops to jump to, through to get to God and achieve salvation. Usually, what people do is they, they bring the standard down to a level that they can just barely get over. And once they do that, then they feel like they've, they've, they've done something. They've accomplished something. Whereas in the Scriptures, it says that in your own power and your own strength, the, standard, you, the standard's impossible. You can't, you can't reach it on your own. And so, <clears throat> many people, what they do is they warp God, and they make Him 
uh, into something that is acceptable to them, or they just erase God and they make new ones from scratch. And when that happens, it is a twisted, backwards perversion of Genesis 1. Genesis 1, what do you have? In Genesis 1, you have God making man in his own image. We twist that around and we make God in our own image. So they build this gigantic ziggurat. They build this gate of God, this meeting place between the human and the divine. And the Bible clearly tells us that we cannot achieve salvation on our own efforts. We can't reach God on our own, no matter how high we build, no matter how high we climb. And the people of Babel and building this tower reflect what people have been doing for centuries through religion. Man-made religion is all about Climbing up and finding a way to get up to God, to climb up to God, yet, the, yet Christianity is all about God coming down to meet us. Later on in the book of Genesis, you have a patriarch named Jacob. Jacob has a dream. And in this dream, he sees something that many Bible scholars think is a ziggurat. <laughs> in fact, Jacob, in this dream, he sees a ladder. And it is a ladder going up from heaven to earth. It's connecting heaven and earth. And that Hebrew word for ladder, in fact, was used to refer to the staircases that were found on ziggurats. And the scripture says that angels were ascending and descending on this ladder. And Jacob woke up and he said, how awesome is this place? This is the gate of heaven. Jacob, in his dream, is seeing this ladder connect heaven and earth. And the New Testament gives us a fuller picture of the significance of what Jacob saw. Later on in the New Testament, in the book of John, Jesus is beginning to collect his disciples. One of these disciples is a man named Nathaniel. Jesus impresses Nathaniel with his knowledge. Nathaniel is blown away. And Jesus says, okay, you, you are, you're impressed, Nathaniel, because I saw you when you were sitting under, under this fig tree, and I wasn't around, but I saw you anyway. You're impressed by that, Nathaniel? Jesus says to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And what is Jesus doing? Jesus is hearkening back to Jacob's dream, to Jacob's story. But there's just one minor difference between Jacob's dream and the picture that Jesus is painting. Do you know what it is? In Jacob's dream, you have a ladder connecting heaven and earth with angels ascending and descending on it. And Jesus' description, you, have, you also have a connection between heaven and earth, and you have angels ascending and descending. But they are ascending and descending not on a ladder, but on Jesus. Jesus says, angels, you see the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Jesus Christ is saying, Nathaniel, I'm that ladder that Jacob was dreaming about long ago. I am that connection between heaven and earth. Later on, Jesus says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No man can come to God the Father but by me. The men of Babel want to come to God in their own way and on their own terms. But you can't pick and choose how you come to God. You can build the biggest tower in the world and it will not do you any good. You can be religious as you can be, but that won't help you. There is only one way, one gate, one door, and that door is Christ. And notice how with each of these sins at Babel, the glory of God is at stake. With each of them. The Babylonians don't want to spread out and fill the earth. 
They're not concerned about filling the earth with the glory of God. So, God disperses them and makes them go so that his glory can fill the earth. The Babylonians want to exalt their own name and fame and glory, and they try to to ascend as high as they can go. And what does God do? God brings them low so that his name is exalted above theirs. Babylonians want to connect with the divine and achieve a spiritual salvation through constructing this temple tower with the hopes that that through their efforts they can achieve salvation. Yet it is God who does the saving through Jesus Christ. And if it is God who is doing the saving, then it is God that gets the credit and the glory for the salvation and not man. Man's desire to unify comes from us being image bearers. Man is a, God is a unity or a triunity or a trinity. Father, Son, and Spirit. But because our sin nature has distorted God's image in us, that desire for unity has been perverted. We still desire unity, but we desire unity without God in the picture. Radical Islamists desire unity, even if they have to kill infidels to achieve it. John Lennon desired unity, as long as it is a unity that is not centered on God and his glory. And the lyrics to John Lennon's song, they they may sound nice and beautiful and warm on the surface, but at the beginning of this message, when I was reading the lyrics of the song, I skipped over some of the lyrics. Let me read some, some more of them to you, unedited. He says, imagine there's no heaven. It's easy for you to try. No hell above us, above us, or no hell below us, above us only sky. Imagine all the people. Living for today. Imagine there's no countries isn't hard to do. Nothing to kill or die for and no religion too. Imagine all the people living life in peace. You may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will be as one. Imagine no possessions. I wonder if you can. No need for greed or hunger, a brotherhood of man. Imagine all the people sharing all the world. So what do we have here? We have a picture of unity. But unity around what? This song is actually depressing. This song is actually evil. But the sentiments expressed in this song are nothing new. It goes all the way back to Babel. Unity, oneness, togetherness, brotherhood. Let's have it all as long as it does not include God. We can make up new gods or we can, like Lenin, get rid of gods totally. Both notions are satanic because Satan doesn't care what you do or what you worship or what you don't worship as long as you are not worshiping Jesus Christ. And we see at Babel that a united community of men is not always a good thing. So what specifically is the kind of community that God wants? Well, we see God's heart echoed, I think, in the prayer of Jesus In John 17, Jesus is praying to the Father, and Jesus says, I pray not only for these, my my disciples, but also for those who believe in me through their message, that's you. May they all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I am in you. May they also be one in us, so that the world may believe you sent me. God desires for his people to be unified in Christ. But not to make our name great, but so that the world may believe that you sent me, Jesus says. It always goes back to God and 
his interest as opposed to our interests. God is not interested in unity for unity's sake. He's not interested in community for community's sake. God is only interested in those things if it points back to him, and if it does not, it will be destroyed. It will be scattered. It will come to nothing in the end. And so God is seeking a community of people, a tribe of people, who are totally united in the purpose of seeking, extolling, elevating, praising, honoring, and giving glory to God. And God even now is building this community. And the great event that that announced what God was doing was at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And Acts 2 is God's response to Genesis 11. In Genesis 11, what happens? The people reject God and God scatters them and confuses their languages so that they cannot understand one another. In Acts 2, what happens? God brings the nations together. He brings the people groups of the world together in one place. Acts says that there were dwelling in Jerusalem devout men from every nation under heaven. So the nations that were once scattered now in Genesis 11 are brought together in Acts 2. These people who speak all different languages, now they're all here in one place. And what else do we see in Acts 2? We see God pouring out his Holy Spirit on these people. And the confusion that was experienced at Babel is now reversed. So as the, as the apostles begin preaching about Christ uh, and and, and through the, the power of God, everyone is hearing in their own language. Everyone is understanding the words that are being preached in their own tongue. Everyone is understanding what is happening. And the confusion of Babel is reversed in Acts 2. And the words that are being spoken in Acts 2 are not, Come and let us make a name for ourselves. Rather, the words that are being declared is a word that says, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And all of these people, regardless of their ethnic or language backgrounds, they're all understanding this at the same time. And Acts 2 is the response to Genesis 11. And the division that was caused by sin and the disruption of the unity at Babel, Scripture tells us that's being reversed in Christ This is why Paul says in Galatians 3, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. This is the church. This is the Jesus tribe. This is the the kind of community and unity that God is building. All other community will be destroyed, will be scattered. There will be no community to enjoy in hell. People will not be joining together in hell to to, uh, usurp God. They won't be singing, imagine. Instead, the scripture says there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The consummation of this Acts 2 Babylonian reversal that God is doing is going to be fully realized in the next age. In the next age... You're going to have people totally united and joined together, gathered around the throne of God. And they're not seeking to overthrow God or take over that throne or exalt themselves above him. Rather, you have the nations in the book of Revelation all coming together, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, crying out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. 
saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. I don't know exactly where you are spiritually or what you are struggling with this morning, but the three sins of Babel are deep root sins that affect all of us. Maybe this morning there are things going on in your life that are threatening your sense of security. And you are tempted to find security and peace and rest and something else outside of God. Maybe, maybe you're having a conflict in your relationship with someone that is threatening your sense of security and well-being. Maybe you're struggling with a fear of man, worrying about people who may be coming against you. Maybe, maybe God is calling you to do something that scares you to death. The challenge for you this morning is to not seek to save your life by clinging to lesser things. The challenge is to let go of all of those other things and to cling to and trust God instead. The challenge is to really believe that God is a good God, good, a good father who gives good gifts to his children and he is not out to, to harm his people, but rather he is working all things together for the good of his people. Others here in this room may be struggling with a desire for self-exaltation. You are consumed with worry over what other people think about you. You desire recognition. You desire praise. You desire respect and honor. The challenge for you this morning is to release those things and pray that God will help you be consumed with a passion for His name, not yours. His glory, not yours. His recognition, His fame, not yours. The challenge is to get over yourself and get into God. To remember that it is not about you, it is all about Him. To remember that whoever humbles himself, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And then there may be some here who have been caught in the rat race of man-centered salvation. You may have, you have been building a tower, so to speak. You've been climbing the steps You've been jumping through the hoops. You've been doing everything you can possibly think of to be right with God, to have peace with God, to achieve salvation. The challenge and the call for you this morning is to quit, to stop trying, to stop striving, to stop climbing. You can't reach God that way. No more than the men of Babel could build a tower to reach heaven. It is all an exercise in futility. All who attempt to save themselves will be lost. I promise you. But all who recognize they are lost and call upon the name of the Lord, who can do for them what they cannot do for themselves, those are the ones that will be saved. And they will be brought into the Jesus tribe, into a family of believers, into a family of spiritual brothers and sisters, united in community with them for the purpose of exalting and glorifying God. I need to close this up here, but isn't it interesting that our, our, the, the, the deepest needs and longings that we have are found in Christ. Think about these sins of Babel. We crave peace, and we crave security, and we crave safety. And what does Jesus say? Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. Jesus says, my sheep will never perish. No one will snatch them from my hand. How, secure can, how much more secure can you get than that? Jesus says, come to me, all you who are heavy laden and burdened, and I will give you rest. And that rest, and that security, and that safety is Christ. We crave to have a name that will be exalted, be praised, be lifted up. 
And that name is meant to be the name of Christ. We crave to connect with God. We long for salvation. We, we sense that we're separated from God, and, and that separation between heaven and earth is bridged by Christ. It's all about Christ. So I guess my call to you today is, whatever is going on in your life, and whatever you're dealing with, come, come to Christ. I'm going to pray, and we're going to move into our response time. And as the, as the song is playing, and as we're dropping off prayer requests and, and offerings, if there's something that you're struggling with, if you want somebody to pray with you, if, you, if you're struggling with one of these three sins of Babel, or maybe there's something else that God is dealing with you about this morning, will you come and pray with me? I would love to pray with you about these things. And Steve will be available as well to pray with you. We'll both be right up here. You'll be like saying, like, well, the songs are playing. I can't, no, come. Who cares? The songs are playing. That's great. We're singing about God, so come and let's pray as well while the songs are praying. That's fine. All right? I'll be available. Steve will be available. But come. Come to Christ and let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would help us. Oh, God. There are so many things that pull us away from you. Even those of us this morning who are in Christ, there are so many distractions, so many temptations, so many opportunities that the devil lays before us to find things that we are meant to find in you. So God, I pray that you would be our vision, that you would help us to turn our eyes upon Jesus, that you would be supreme in our life, that we would be consumed with a passion and a desire for you and for the exaltation of you and your name. Forgive us of our sins and thank you for being so patient with us, God. Sanctify us and make us holy for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.